Welcome to TopCast, an episode two in the Fabric of Reality series, during which the preparation thereof, I figured out we're going to need at least one more episode. So this is going to be a three-part series on chapter one, which is the theory of everything from the Fabric of Reality. And today we're absolutely going to see all the ways in which the beginning of infinity appears there in seed-like form in the fabric of reality. So too, parts of the science of can and can't, parts of constructor theory are absolutely here as well. So I'm partway through, after part one, I only got through a few pages, I'm only partway through the chapter right now. And I'm on page seven for anyone who's reading along, right down the bottom of page seven, where David writes, quote, to say that prediction is the purpose of a scientific theory, is to confuse means with ends. It is like saying that the purpose of a spaceship is to burn fuel. In fact, burning fuel is only one of many things a spaceship has to do to accomplish its real purpose, which is to transport its payload from one point in space to another. Passing experimental tests is only one of many things a theory has to do to achieve the real purpose of science, which is to explain the world. As I have said, Explanations are inevitably framed partly in terms of things we do not observe directly. Atoms and forces, the interiors of stars, and the rotation of galaxies, the past and the future, the laws of nature. The deeper an explanation is, the more remote from immediate experience are the entities to which it must refer. But these entities are not fictional. On the contrary, they are part of the very fabric of reality. Pausing there, just reflecting on this. Today, I've made a couple of other podcasts as well, and they'll be coming out coincident with this within sort of a week or so. It takes that long to edit these things. One is about quasars, and so I'm sure you can find that in the YouTube feed or in the podcast feed somewhere or other. It's just called Quasars, and it's me talking about quasars, the history of their discovery and the physics behind what causes them to do what they do. And almost everything of interest there is unobserved. Almost everything of interest about what causes a quasar to do what a quasar does, much less to speak of the history of quasar um, discovery, is unobserved. Unobserved. And also released with this episode is a series on the science of canon Kant by Chiara Marletto. And again, I was talking about this very same issue. It just comes up again and again that the main content of an explanation is the unseen parts of it. And David's just listed a few things there. The things that we don't observe directly. Atoms and forces, the interiors of stars and the rotations of galaxies, the past and the future, the laws of nature. In fact, not only not observe directly, not observe at all. Okay, In the case of the core of stars, I was saying in another episode that there's no possible way that we know of, it appears to be impossible, to observe the core of a star directly or at all. You can't send a probe there. There's no way in which you could get to the center of the star. And it's optically opaque anyway, so you can't get radiation through there. I suppose in some distant future, theoretically, some sort of hugely sensitive gravity meter or some other kind of device beyond which we have no conception right now might be able to image the center of a star. But at the moment, no chance. No chance. Whatever's going on there is going on at 15 million Kelvin. Nothing can survive 15 million Kelvin and very little information survives at 15 million Kelvin. 
And the only way we have to figure out what's going on there is to observe the photons that arrive at Earth, and we can see some of the surface of the Sun and infer, therefore, what the explanation that produces the effects that we do observe must be. Okay, what the causes of the effects that we do observe must be. Namely, stellar fusion, fusion in the core of the sun, the, 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 the combining of hydrogen nuclei to form helium and in the process producing heat and light. And thinking of history, I mean, we observe, we observe documents, don't we? We observe the newspaper clippings and these days, of course, video records. But we don't observe right now as a matter of our experience, our immediate experience here and now. We don't observe the past. And so when I talked about the history of quasars in that episode, I don't observe those particular physicists that were involved in creating the knowledge about quasars, discovering the problem to begin with, and then slowly resolving the problem with this theory of quasars. All I've got access to is documents, um, articles online and textbooks and so on. But that's hardly observing the past directly. It's not observing the past at all. It's observing documents, interpreting them, and then constructing an explanation, a historical explanation, about how it is that this theory arose all in the first place. Interested interested in that? Just look for the, the Quasars episode. Okay, so I'm, I'm skipping a bit there because David is... Um, uh, distinguishing between the importance of explanations and how, you know, in physics we do have the capacity to make certain kinds of predictions, but that is hardly the main point of a scientific theory. But this is a point I've belaboured often in the various podcasts I've made, so I won't do it again here and now more than I've already done so. So I'm skipping to the part where David says, quote, Most people would say, and this is in effect what was being said to me on the occasion I recalled from my childhood, that it is not only recorded facts which have been increasing at an overwhelming rate, but also the number and complexity of theories through which we understand the world. Consequently, they say, whether or not it was ever possible for one person to understand everything that was understood at the time, it is certainly not possible now, and it is becoming less and less possible as our knowledge grows. It might seem that every time a new explanation or technique is discovered that is relevant to a given subject, another theory must be added to the list that anyone wishing to understand that subject must learn, and that when the number of such theories in any one subject becomes too great, specialisations develop. Physics, for example, has split into the sciences of astrophysics, thermodynamics, particle physics, quantum field theory, and many others. Each of these is based on a theoretical framework at least as rich as the whole of physics was a hundred years ago, and many are already fragmenting into sub-specializations. The more we discover, it seems, the further and more irrevocably we are propelled into the age of the specialist, and the more remote is that hypothetical ancient time when a single person's standing might have encompassed all that was understood. Confronted with this vast and rapidly growing menu of the collected theories of the human race, one may be forgiven for doubting that an individual could so much as taste every dish in a lifetime, let alone, as might once have been possible, appreciate all known recipes. Yet explanation is a strange sort of food. A larger portion is not necessarily harder to swallow. A theory may be superseded by a new theory, which explains more and is more accurate, but is also easier to understand, in which case the old theory becomes redundant and we gain more understanding while needing to learn less than before. This is what happened when Nicholas Copernicus's theory of the Earth travelling around the Sun superseded the complex Ptolemaic system which had placed the Earth at the centre of the universe. 
or a new theory might be a simplification of an existing one, such as when the Arabic decimal notation for numbers superseded Roman numerals. The theory here is an implicit one. Each notation renders certain operations, statements and thoughts about numbers simpler than others, and hence it embodies a theory about which relationships between numbers are useful or interesting. Or a theory may be a unification of two old ones, giving us more understanding than using the old ones side by side, as happened when Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell unified the theories of electricity and magnetism into a single theory of electromagnetism. More indirectly, better explanations in any subject tend to improve the techniques, concepts and language with which we are trying to understand other subjects and so our knowledge as a whole, while increasing, can become structurally more amenable to being understood. Pausing there and just skipping a very substantial piece on the Roman numeral system and its redundancy in the light of a better idea, namely Arabic numerals. And then we get into a section which really prefaces so much that is in the beginning of infinity and motivates the underlying worldview of David Deutsch and is kind of an improvement upon the work of Karl Popper, a sharpening up of what Karl Popper said. Here it is, quote, David says, it is hard to give a precise definition of explanation or understanding. Roughly speaking, they are about why rather than what, about the inner workings of things, about how things really are, not just how they appear to be, about what must be so, rather than what merely appears to be so, about laws of nature, rather than rules of thumb. Just pausing there. It's also hard, and this I get straight from David Deutsch, and I don't know if it's mentioned here in The Fabric of Reality. I don't recall it being mentioned in The Fabric of Reality. But one reason why we cannot give a precise definition of what an explanation is and why we cannot give a precise definition of what hard to vary means. Okay, David Deutsch has given us the idea that what we're seeking in knowledge creation are good explanations and by good he means hard to vary and people say well what's hard to vary and he tries to give an explanation of what hard to vary is namely that all the parts of the explanation serve a purpose such that none of them are arbitrary and if you were to try and change any one of them, you would break the explanation. Okay, and that's my understanding of hard to vary more, more or less. And then people object and they want to say, well, but that's not definitive. Uh, you know, there are, there are options here. There's a, there's a certain looseness. There's a certain hazy character to these definitions. And one wants to say, in the Papirian view, absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. We're not going to get hung up on definitions. We're not Wittgensteinian, okay? Ludwig Wittgenstein infected philosophy with the notion that we should argue about words and terminology, and we need to sharpen up our understanding of words and terminology. And if we don't, then we're not doing proper philosophy. This is wrong. This is false. What we're trying to do in philosophy, on Karl Popper's view, on the Popperian view, and now us who inherit the Popperian view, is to solve problems problems in philosophy. Namely, things like, what are we after when we're trying to create trying to create knowledge? We're after explanations. We're after trying to explain the world. What's an explanation? Well, you know, it's an account of why rather than what. It's an account of what is really out there, how things, um, not just how things appear to be, but what must be so, this kind of thing. Oh, but that's not a strict definition. No. And one reason why an important reason why we can't sharpen this up 
is because we have to allow for new modes of explanation. We have to allow our definition, so to speak, our understanding of explanation, to be sufficiently elastic to allow for new kinds of explanation to be invented in the future. There didn't used to be a mode of explanation called the... Darwinian understanding of evolution by natural selection. Evolution by natural selection, this way in which genes can be selected for or selected against the selfish gene idea, is a new mode of explanation. Nothing like that existed before. But if you tried to say that explanations could only consist of, let's say, as I've been talking about in physics recently, and Chiara Maletto's book, that if the only explanation that's permitted is an explanation in terms of dynamical laws and, and initial conditions, then that would also rule out something like evolution by natural selection, which is not of that kind. It's not an explanation of that kind. Much less all of constructor theory. We need to allow for explanations that don't necessarily comport with our conception of explanations right now. Okay, So the best that we can do is to give broad brushstrokes about what explanations are. We know it when we see it to a large extent. An explanation is an account of what exists out there, how it works, uh, why it works, and all that kind of stuff. But, but we can't be too sharp about it. In fact, this is true, I should just say, as a by-the-by, for any area of science or philosophical interest. We're not after definitions. If you're after definitions, pick up a dictionary read the dictionary definition. And if you think that gives you a deep understanding of the phenomena you're interested in, good luck. <laughs> but the rest of us who are interested in actually uh, comprehending the world in which we find ourselves, using the best explanations that have thus far been found, we want more than just definitions. And so, for example, when people get caught up on, let's say, well, tell me what an electron really is. Well, we can give you and the best understanding we have right now, but a definition of an electron, like learning it, like supposedly, you know, a good student in high school does or something or other, you write down your glossary at the back of your science book and you write down the definitions of words so that you can regurgitate them during a test. Sounds abhorrent. And in fact, it's anti-Papirian, of course, like I'm saying. We want an understanding. What's our best understanding of electrons right now? Well, they're particles and they, they exist in multiple universes. They're excitations of the quantum field to some extent. There's these ways of conceptualizing what an electron is to give us an image, both mathematical and visual, of what these objects called electrons happen to be. That solves our problem. That solves our problem of what our understanding of electrons is, what they are, what these objects are. doesn't mean it's a final, definitive, uh, forever definition of an electron. No, absolutely not. And there can be no such definition. So forget definitions. should also say, beyond things like that, something like a more controversial concept like free will. People get caught up in defining what free will is. And this is a perfect way perfect way for it to, to go off the rails. And so recently when people talk about free will, they'll say, well, what you have defined as free will isn't free will. And there's no point in trying to talk about something that isn't what everyone else regards as regards free will as being. And I just think to myself, well, just because everyone else defines free will in this particular way, just because the dictionary does, has no bearing whatsoever on the true nature of free will. In the same way that the overwhelming majority of people, if asked to define what a species is, will get it wrong. That has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on our best understanding of what a species is. 
or what an electron is. Most people would get it wrong, okay? Would, would, be, would deviate from our best understanding of that. And when we encounter a problem with a concept like, let's say, free will, which is useful because it's useful in trying to understand what a person is, that a person can generate uh, explanations, can create explanations. Those explanations allow for a greater repertoire of choices to exist, choices that didn't exist before. Namely, if you create an explanation like general relativity, it gives you a choice at some point in the future which you could never have possibly had before it, namely the existence of a really precise GPS system. So that choice now exists. That choice to build or not to build that thing you can build it or not build it. That's free will. It's a very hard to avoid this word. But if people insist on saying, well, free will is that supernatural thing that you can't possibly have in a deterministic universe, and that's that, or something similar to that, then, of course, there is no progress to be made. We're fixated on definitions. And anyone can argue that nothing exists based upon a definition. So, for example, you can quite easily say that atoms don't exist. I can sit back with my arms crossed and say, no, I don't believe in atoms. Why? Because the Greeks said that the atoms are indivisible little spheres. And I don't believe they exist. In fact, science tells us that those things don't exist. What we have instead are particles called electrons and protons, and that's it. And the atoms don't exist. And if I come along and say, but hold on, our understanding of atoms has moved on, it's evolved. It is that object where you've got a nucleus consisting of the protons and the neutrons orbited by electrons. That's what we understand atoms to be. If you still then insist on saying, no, I'm not calling that an atom. The Greeks invented the word atom and that's it. Well, then there's no possibility for consensus, learning. We're just arguing about words and you can keep that word atom if you want. And let's call that object something else for the purpose of making progress. Let's call it George. I'm happy to call it George and move on. But that's rather strange, isn't it? Like uh, insisting that we have to adhere to certain definitions of words rather than making progress on scientific and philosophical concepts, especially where there's open-ended questions, especially in an area like consciousness, creativity, and I would say free will belongs there as well. Insisting that these things cannot possibly obtain, to use the philosophical jargon, in a universe which is deterministic, is again falling into the Wittgensteinian trap that philosophy is about linguistics and words and that we can define out of existence certain things. This is not to say, it's not to say that there are certain other things that we want to um, suggest don't exist, that our best understanding of them suggest they don't exist. For example, ghosts. Okay, there's a way in which we can talk about ghosts, that supernatural thing. By our understanding of science, there's no reason, there's no explanation that requires ghosts to exist or unicorns to exist or Gandalf the Grey, the wizard, to really exist in physical reality. No explanation is required for those things. And this is where something may exist or may not exist. But something like free will is where we can have a reasonable debate about things. But insisting on a particular definition to rule out something, to rule out free will in the same way that we rule out rule out Gandalf the Grey or fairies or something else like that, is simply to ignore the fact that we don't understand how it is that people, different to all other creatures in the universe, all other systems in the universe, create knowledge and then make choices in a way that is utterly different to any other species that exists in the universe that we know of, any other system that exists in the universe that we know of. We create knowledge. It's mysterious. And part of that mystery is free will. And trying to define it out of existence, I don't buy it. And I don't think it's useful either.
yet again another tirade on free will. I should ban myself from <laughs> talking about that again for a while. I've done episode after episode on it, but it keeps coming up. And so I can't fully blame myself <laughs> reacting against people who keep on saying that they have the final once and for all explanation of free will. I think I have an explanation of free will. I don't think it's the once and for all one. I think it's just better than anything that I've heard so far. And it's certainly better than ones that say, well, um, by definition, free will can't exist in a deterministic universe. Hmm. And again, we'll have something more to say about that that idea in the science of Canon Kant, because this whole idea of deterministic universe based upon deterministic physical laws, laws of motion with initial conditions, well, constructive theory is going to have something to say about that as well. But that's a whole other story. We're going to come here in the fabric of reality to part of the mystery about that. Explanations, as David says, quote, going back to the book, they are also about coherence, elegance and simplicity, as opposed to arbitrariness and complexity, though none of those things is easy to define either. But in any case, understanding is one of the higher functions of the human mind and brain, and a unique one. Many other physical systems, such as animals' brains, computers, and other machines, can assimilate facts and act upon them, but at present we know of nothing that is capable of understanding an explanation, or of wanting one in the first place, other than a human mind. Every discovery of a new explanation, and every act of grasping an explanation, depends on the uniquely human faculty of creative thought. Pausing there, my reflection. Well, right there we see the seed of, the explanation of, what a person is. And in the beginning of infinity we sharpen this up to be, a person is a universal explanation creator, a universal explainer. And that all comes straight from here. It's, it's, there's a prelude here to it. You know, only uh, human mind, the, the human mind is the only thing that we know of already in physical reality, capable of understanding an explanation or grasping an explanation, all of which is equivalent to creating an explanation in the first place, this uniquely human faculty of creative thought. Now we say uniquely human at the moment. If we have artificial general intelligence, and we know it must be physically possible, then the artificial general intelligence will also be part of these creatures that have this unique ability to create explanations. The only other thing that I can think of really would be alien intelligence out there somewhere or other that could also be able to create explanations in their own mind, the, the mind of the aliens, and that would make them people. Uh, and just skipping a section here again and going to a part where David writes, quote, It is possible to understand something without knowing that one understands it, or even without having specifically heard of it. This may sound paradoxical, but of course the whole point of deep general explanations is that they cover unfamiliar situations as well as familiar ones. If you were a modern mathematician and counting Roman numerals for the first time, you might not instantly realize that you have already understood them. You would have to learn the facts about what they are, and then think about those facts in light of your existing understanding of mathematics. But once you had done that, you'll be able to say in retrospect, yes, there's nothing new in the Roman numeral system beyond mere facts. And that is what it means to say that Roman numerals, in their explanatory role, are fully obsolete. 
Similarly, when I say I understand how the curvature of space and time affects the motion of planets, even other solar systems I may never have heard of, I'm not claiming that I can call to mind without further thought the explanation of every detail of the loops and wobbles of any planetary orbit. What I mean is that I understand the theory that contains all those explanations and that I could therefore produce any of them in due course, given some facts about a particular planet. Having done so, I should be able to say in retrospect, yes, I see nothing in the motion of that planet other than mere facts, which is not explained by the general theory of relativity. We understand the fabric of reality only by understanding theories that explain it, and since they explain more than we are immediately aware of, we can understand more than we are immediately aware that we understand. Pausing there my reflection. This is in part the concept of inexplicit knowledge, or at least implicit knowledge, implicit knowledge. So if I have an understanding to take a simpler case of Newton's law of gravity, okay, the formula is F equals G M1 M2 over R squared, or at least one formulation of it, then although I might not be able to call to mind to remember exactly how Neptune, for example, orbits the sun, using this law, I can quite readily predict how fast Neptune will orbit the sun, given a few details about the mass of the sun and the distance to Neptune, let's say. And so the one law contains within it implicitly explanations, predictions, and descriptions of the orbits of all the planets in the solar system. In fact, all the orbits of planets that exist in solar systems yet to be discovered. So it's that that's the sense in which it's, it's implicit, and my understanding of those things is implicit as well, and David's understanding of these things is uh, implicitly contained within those things. Continuing, David writes, I am not saying that when we understand a theory, it necessarily follows that we understand everything it can explain. With a very deep theory, the recognition that it explains a given phenomenon may itself be a significant discovery or acquiring independent explanation. For example, quasars, extremely bright sources of radiation at the centre of some galaxies, were for many years one of the mysteries of astrophysics. It was once thought that new physics would be needed to explain them, but now we believe that they are explained by the general theory of relativity and other theories that were already known before quasars were discovered. We believe that quasars consist of hot matter in the process of falling into black holes, collapsed stars whose gravitational field is so intense that nothing can escape from them. Yet reaching that conclusion has required years of research, both observational and theoretical. Now that we believe we have gained a measure of understanding of quasars, we do not think that this understanding is something we already had before. Explaining quasars through existing theories has given us genuinely new understanding. Just as it is hard to define what an explanation is, it is hard to define when a subsidiary explanation should count as an independent component of what is being understood and when it should be considered as being subsumed in the deeper theory. It is hard to define, but not so hard to recognize. In practice, we know a new explanation when we are given one. The difference has something to do with creativity. Explaining the motion of a particular planet when one already understands the general explanation of gravity is a mechanical task though it may be a very complex one. But using existing theory to account for quasars requires creative thought. Thus, to understand everything that is understood in astrophysics today, you would have to know the theory of quasars explicitly, but you would not have to know the orbit of any specific planet. Pausing there, my reflection. And just because this is on my mind right now, so what David's saying there is, okay, here's the situation with quasars in the sense in which they weren't already contained within existing knowledge of astrophysics. Because... 
it was a problem. Here's, in short, um, what my episode about quasars is all about. And it's just fortuitous that I happen to have made an, a, a thing about quasars, which was a response to something I said in an episode called The Nexus, which is basically about people. But I talked about quasars. And the reason I talked about quasars is because David has used it in the beginning of Infinity and in his TED Talks to talk about this concept of self-similarity, how our theories of quasars over time come to more accurately resemble actual quasars out there on the other side of the universe. Anyway, the history of the discovery of quasars is that at first they were found to be extremely distant. Okay, long story short, they were found to have high redshifts, so therefore they are typically billions of light years away, billions of light years away. That was found looking at the spectra of these things fine very well. However, although the spectra told us that they were a long way off, receding at a very high velocity, other telescopes and other measurements were able to reveal what their luminosity was, how bright they were. And they were just too bright. They were too bright for any existing theory of physics to account for. They were small, smaller than, you know, basically, well, on, on the order of maybe a little bit bigger than a solar system, but certainly not as big as a galaxy, and yet thousands of times brighter than a galaxy, many thousands of times brighter than a typical galaxy. So distant, brighter than a galaxy, much smaller than a galaxy. How would this be possible? Well, it's not possible if you assume that the quasar is truly a quasi-stellar radio source, a quasi, a, a somewhat like a star uh, source of light. A star a star puts out light from all points on its surface, roughly evenly. It's a big sphere, roughly speaking, of plasma, of hot gas. And it's putting out radiation equally in all directions. Now, this is true of objects in space generally. And this is what astronomers reasonably thought that a quasar should be. It should be a spherical object putting out light in all directions equally. Now, if you make that assumption, then the physics just doesn't work. It's not possible for something that small to be that bright. It exceeds something called the Eddington limit and violates laws of physics. So they thought they needed new physics, as David says there. They don't, and this is why, although you could have a full understanding of general relativity and you could have a full understanding of quantum theory and nuclear physics and all that sort of stuff, and still not be able to explain what a quasar is, even though a quasar obeys all those laws. And the reason is, well, the problem of how it could be so bright whilst being so distant is it's not putting out light in all directions evenly. It's putting out light in beams. It's putting out light in very narrow uh, beams. And we, we can see just that part of the beam. And so it appears super bright, and that's fine if you notice and assume that it's not putting out that energy in all directions, but just a few privileged directions, two typically. And so we're getting a very concentrated part of that beam. Uh, at least part of in that see my episode on quasars for more about exactly what's going on. Sometimes we're in the beam, in which case it's called a blazer, and sometimes we can see the lobes of gas produced by the beam being illuminated by the beam, and so it's a sort of a complicated process. But quasars are absolutely fascinating objects because they are so distant, they allow us to understand what the universe was like in the deep, dark past. In fact, the deep, bright past, as it turns out, because there were many more of these things in the early universe. And therefore, we see them at very high redshifts at very di distant parts of the universe. Okay, skipping a section where David talks about 
other kinds of explanation, inexplicit explanations, uh, which people in bygone eras needed to rely on. So they weren't proper explanations, but rather rules of thumb. Okay, rules of thumb, things that appear to have worked probably by some process of evolution by natural selection. You use this rule of thumb to build a bridge and it's worked because all previous attempts to use it have worked and the ones that didn't work, well, the bridge fell down. But you don't know why. You don't know the engineering principles that underlie why this bridge stayed up and this bridge fell down. But you use certain rules of thumb and lucky for you, those rules of thumb happen to be able to be derived from deeper physical theories. But you don't know the physical theories. You've just guessed the right a bit of the theory without knowing what it is, if that makes sense. Uh, that's why it's inexplicit. You haven't been able to put it into words, been able to explain it in any way. As David says of this, when admiring centuries-old structures, people often forget that we see only the surviving ones. The overwhelming majority of structures built in medieval and earlier times have collapsed long ago, often soon after they were built. <laughs> so, you know, people get very excited about the pyramids, okay? Oh, wow, the pyramids, you know, the, the Egyptians built these big pile of rocks. They must have had alien help. They're so impressive. Putting aside they're not that impressive, they are literally a pile of rocks. Um, insofar as there's any architectural ingenuity there that we can sort of think is impressive, you know, if you give a typical person with, you know, even moderate amount of engineering <laughs> understanding a sufficient amount of human labor, cheaply paid human labor, under the threat of a tyrant, well, you can probably get a pretty impressive pile of rocks going as well with little chambers inside. But how many pyramids were there that didn't survive, that fell down? Don't know. Okay, It's hard for a pile of rocks to fall down, but collapse in some way or other and needed to be rebuilt. We don't know. There's no records of those. We're impressed by the ones that survive. So too with bridges, so too with cathedrals and so on. So I'm skipping all of that. And David returns to this concept of um, specialization versus generalizing, okay, and whether or not this constant apparent, apparent fragmenting of our knowledge means that we can't understand everything that could be understood. David writes, quote, I am not, of course, denying that specialization is occurring in many subjects in which knowledge is growing, including architecture. This is not a one-way process, for specializations often disappear too. Wheels are no longer designed or made by wheelwrights, nor plows by plowwrights, nor are letters written by scribes. It is nevertheless quite evident that the deepening, unifying tendency I've been describing is not the only one at work. A continual broadening is going on at the same time. That is, new ideas often do more than just supersede, simplify, or unify existing ones. They also extend human understanding into areas that were previously not understood at all, or whose very existence was not guessed at. They may open up new opportunities, new problems, new specializations, and even new subjects. And when that happens, it may give us, at least temporarily, more to learn in order to understand it all. The science of medicine is perhaps the most frequently cited case of increasing specialization, seeming to follow inevitably from increasing knowledge, as new cures and better treatments for more diseases are discovered. But even in medicine, the opposite, unifying tendency, is also present and is becoming stronger. Admittedly, many functions of the body are still poorly understood, and so are the mechanisms of many diseases. 
Consequently, some areas of medical knowledge still consist mainly of collections of recorded facts together with the skills and intuitions of doctors who have experience of particular diseases and particular treatments and who pass on these skills and intuitions from one generation to the next. Much of medicine, in other words, is still in the rule of thumb era. And when new rules of thumb are discovered, there is indeed more incentive for specialization. But as medicine and biochemical research comes up with deeper explanations of disease processes and healthy processes in the body, understanding is also on the increase. More general concepts are replacing more specific ones as common. Underlying molecular mechanisms are found for dissimilar diseases in different parts of the body. Once a disease can be understood as fitting into a general framework, the role of the specialist diminishes. Instead, Physicians coming across an unfamiliar disease or a rare complication can rely increasingly on explanatory theories. They can look up such facts as are known, but then they may be able to apply a general theory to work out the required treatment and expect it to be effective, even if it never has been used before. Thus, the issue of whether it is becoming harder or easier to understand everything that is understood depends on the overall balance between these two opposing effects of the growth of knowledge the increasing breadth of our theories, and their increasing depth. Breadth makes it harder, depth makes it easier. One thesis of this book is that slowly, but surely, depth is winning. In other words, the proposition that I refuse to believe as a child is indeed false and practically the opposite is true. We are not heading away from a state in which everyone could understand everything that is understood, but towards it. It is not that we shall soon understand everything, that is a completely different issue. I do not believe that we are now, nor ever shall be, close to understanding everything there is. What I am discussing is the possibility of understanding everything that is understood. That depends more on the structure of our knowledge than on its content. But of course, the structure of our knowledge, whether it is expressible in theories that fit together as a comprehensible whole, does depend on what the fabric of reality as a whole is like. If knowledge is to continue its open-ended growth, and if we are nevertheless heading towards a state in which one person could understand everything that is understood, then the depth of our theories must continue to grow fast enough to make this possible. This can happen only if the fabric of reality itself is highly unified, so that more and more of it can become understood as our knowledge grows. If that happens, then eventually our theories will become so general, deep and integrated with one another, that they will effectively become a single theory of a unified fabric of reality. This theory will still not explain every aspect of reality. That is unattainable. But it will encompass all known explanations, and it will apply to the whole fabric of reality, insofar as it is understood. Whereas all previous theories related to particular subjects, this will be a theory of all subjects, a theory of everything. Pausing there, my reflection. Let's just notice that David Deutsch lives this philosophy. Not only is this notion expressed in the beginning of Findy, but David Deutsch's life has, in some sense, been an outworking of this. And if only um, the rest of us could contribute to this in some way, shape, or form. Because, as he says there... Uh, once we have these deeper theories, then it enables us to solve problems in far more disparate areas. But in terms of David's life, uh, academic life, let's consider what's happened. Uh, my version. Interest, he was interested in physics, quantum physics, and theory of computation. And he was the first one to properly unite the theory of quantum physics with computation. Computation prior to which was a part of pure mathematics, invented by Alan Turing, let's say. 
That's one history of it. Alan Turing invents the theory of computation. It's just a mathematical thing. He's trying to solve problems in mathematics. Not until later did they build physical computers. But even then, people still think the theory of computation is just a part of mathematics. David Deutsch then applies quantum physics to the mathematical theory of computation, recognizing that computers are made out of matter. So he unifies, brings together the theory of computation and the theory of quantum physics. So we now have a theory of quantum computation. That's the first thing. Next, constructor theory. Constructor theory is a deeper generalization of the theory of quantum computation. And so now, it appears as though, not all the work has been done yet, but it appears as though this constructor theory, being a deeper version of quantum computation about what is possible and impossible, might be able to provide a physics of knowledge, a physics of epistemology, unifying epistemology and physics. How, how could this be possible at all? Well, because it's got to be possible to know some things and impossible to know other things. And if constructor theory is a fundamental theory of physics, and in fact, what knowledge creation is about, is about trying to construct knowledge about what is possible to know about, and figuring out what it's not possible to know about, and so we can forget about those useless, uninteresting things, then we have a physics of knowledge as well. And so now we've brought part of philosophy into this worldview. So David Deutsch is doing this. He is unifying our various deep theories of reality. Uh, in fact, the fabric of reality is being united specifically by him to a large extent. Uh, and Chiara has done some work on biology as well. And so it could be within his lifetime, we hope, that this fabric of reality might actually end up being a single theory of biology. Um, physics and computation already united, really. They, 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 they deserve to be just considered as one theory. And the theory of epistemology as well, which might very well be just subsumed by constructor theory physics. David then goes on to say, quote, It will not, of course, be the last such theory, but only the first. In science, we take it for granted that even our best theories are bound to be imperfect and problematic in some ways, and we expect them to be superseded in due course by deeper, more accurate theories. Such progress is not brought to a halt when we discover a universal theory. For example, Newton gave us the first universal theory of gravity and a unification of, among other things, celestial and terrestrial mechanics. But his theories have been superseded by Einstein's general theory of relativity, which additionally incorporates geometry, formerly regarded as a branch of mathematics, into physics, and in doing so provides far deeper explanations as well as being more accurate. The first fully universal theory, which I shall call the theory of everything, will, like all our theories before and after it, be neither perfectly true nor infinitely deep, and so will eventually be superseded, but it will not be superseded through unifications with theories about other subjects, for it will already be a theory of all subjects. Pausing there and skipping a substantial part here again. And moving on, David writes, quote, I must stress immediately that, that I am not referring merely to the theory of everything, which some particle physicists hope they will soon discover. Their theory of everything would be a unified theory of all the basic forces known to physics, namely gravity, not a force, electromagnetism and nuclear forces. It would also describe all the types of subatomic particles that exist, 
their masses, spins, electric charges, and other properties, and how they interact. Given a sufficiently precise description of the initial state of any isolated physical system, it would, in principle, predict the future behaviour of the system. Where the exact behaviour of a system was intrinsically unpredictable, it would describe all possible behaviours and predict their probabilities. In practice, the initial states of interesting systems often cannot be ascertained very accurately, and in any case, the calculation of the predictions will be too complicated to be carried out in all but the simplest cases. Nevertheless, such a unified theory of particles and forces, together with a specification of the initial state of the universe at the Big Bang, the violent explosion with which the universe began, would in principle contain all the information necessary to predict everything that can be predicted. But prediction is not explanation. The hoped-for theory of everything, even if combined with, an, with a theory of the initial state, will at best provide only a tiny facet of the real theory of everything. It may predict everything in principle, but it cannot be expected to explain much more than the existing theories do except for a few phenomena that are dominated by the nuances of subatomic particle interactions, such as collisions inside particle accelerators and the exotic history of particle transmutations in the Big Bang. What motivates the term theory of everything for such a narrow, albeit fascinating, piece of knowledge? It is, I think, another mistaken view of the nature of science held disapprovingly by many critics of science and, alas, approvingly by many scientists. Namely, that science is essentially reductionist. That is to say, science allegedly explains things reductively by analysing them into components. For example, the resistance of a wall being penetrated or knocked down is explained by regarding the wall as a vast aggregation of interacting molecules. The properties of these molecules are themselves explained in terms of their constituent atoms and the interactions of these atoms with one another, and so on, down to the smallest particles and the most basic forces. Reductionists think that all scientific explanations, and perhaps all sufficiently deep explanations of any kind, take that form. The reductionist conception leads naturally to a classification of subjects and theories in a hierarchy, according to how close they are to the lowest level predictive theories that are known. In this hierarchy, logic and mathematics form the immovable bedrock on which the edifice of science is built. The foundation stone would be a reductive theory of everything, a universal theory of particles, forces, space and time, together with some theory of what the initial state of the universe was. The rest of physics forms the first few stories. Astrophysics and chemistry are at a higher level, geology even higher, and so on. The edifice branches into many towers of increasingly high-level subjects like biochemistry, biology and genetics. Perched at the tottering stratospheric tops are subjects like the theory of evolution, economics, psychology and computer science, which in this picture are almost inconceivably derivative. Pausing there, just my reflection on this. Yes, this is just the common way that people talk about our knowledge. And David's going to come to the idea that, you know, even more than that, you have this conception that at the base and the most important immovable thing is mathematics or logic. But above that, slightly, you have science, all the sciences, you know, that because they're based on evidence, whereas mathematics is absolutely certain. And then, well, science isn't quite certain, but, you know, it's empirically testable or provable, if you like. And then above that, you've got uh, philosophy, which is a mere matter of opinion. You know, this misconception arises out of the same kind of ideas. It's a denial of the reality of emergence. Now, I'm skipping a little bit more where David talks about the, this reductionist theory of everything. And I'm just going to read a part which apparently, you know, because um, my Kindle tells me when people have highlighted certain passages. And this particular passage uh, has been highlighted 100 times. And the, the 
the couple of sentences before the highlighted passage reads like this. For higher-level sciences, the reductionist program is a matter of principle only. No one expects actually to deduce the many principles of biology, psychology, or politics from those of physics. Next part has been highlighted 100 times. The reason why higher-level subjects can be studied at all is that under special circumstances, the stupendously complex behaviour of vast numbers of particles resolves itself into a measure of simplicity and comprehensibility. This is called emergence. High-level simplicity emerges from low-level complexity. High-level phenomena about which there are comprehensible facts that are not simply deducible from lower-level theories are called emergent phenomena. Okay, just pausing there, my reflection. Yes, and so almost everything of interest outside of theoretical physics is of this kind. It's emergent phenomena. It comes out of the lower-level theories, but it's not deducible from them. Okay, and so that's why I regard lots of the stuff that is mysterious about human beings, our ability to create knowledge and so on, as emergent and real and needs to be understood in its own terms at that level, not at the level of physics or any other level like the operation of neurons in a brain. It's the wrong level of analysis. I'm skipping a whole part again. David goes into a critique of the opposite of reductionism, which is holism, the idea that we shouldn't be looking for explanations at the lowest level, but rather at the highest level. And in both cases, these are just misconceptions that we should privilege any particular level of explanation. All the explanations are needed. We should want to understand everything at every level of emergence. David mentions that uh, a reductionist thinks that science is about analyzing things into components. An instrumentalist thinks that it is about predicting things. To either of them, sciences at the higher level are just for convenience. They don't correspond to anything real. And this is all a misconception that we are quite familiar with. Now, I can't let this go. I cannot let this chapter go. But it is where I'll, I'll finish it without reading and giving due respect to a story that has had a great impact on me and a great impact on this podcast as well. And that is, of course, the Winston Churchill copper atom argument. <laughs> and so I am going to read it. I don't know if David knew when he wrote this that it would be referred to so frequently thereafter, um, not just by me, by me a fair bit, but, but by a lot of people who try to explain the importance of emergent explanations and how reductionism has just a poverty of content when applied in certain contexts, that you can't use reductionism in anything outside of theoretical physics. And in fact, it's absurd to even try. How absurd? Let's see. David writes, quote, for example, Consider one particular copper atom at the tip of the nose of the statue of Sir Winston Churchill that stands in Parliament Square in London. Let me try to explain why that copper atom is there. It is because Churchill served as Prime Minister in the House of Commons nearby, and because his ideas and leadership contributed to the Allied victory in the Second World War, and because it is customary to honour such people by putting up statues of them, and because bronze, a traditional material for such statues, contains copper, and so on. Thus we explain a low-level physical observation 
the presence of a copper atom at a particular location, through extremely high-level theories about emergent phenomena such as ideas, leadership, war, and tradition. There is no reason why there should exist, even in principle, any lower-level explanation of the presence of that copper atom than the one I have just given. Presumably, a reductive theory of everything would in principle make a low-level prediction of the probability that such a statue will exist given the condition of, say, the solar system at some earlier stage. It would also, in principle, describe how the statue probably got there. But such descriptions and predictions, wildly infeasible of course, would explain nothing. They would merely describe the trajectory that each copper atom followed from the copper mine, through the smelter and the sculptor's studio, and so on. They could also state how those trajectories were influenced by forces exerted by surrounding atoms, such as those comprising the miners' and sculptors' bodies, and so predict the existence and shape of the statue. In fact, such a prediction would have to refer to atoms all over the planet, engaged in the complex motion we call the Second World War, among other things. But even if you had the superhuman capacity to follow such lengthy predictions of the copper atoms being there, you would still not be able to say, Ah yes, now I understand why it's there. You would merely know that its arrival there, in that way, was inevitable, or likely, or whatever, given all the atoms' initial configurations and the laws of physics. If you wanted to understand why, you would still have no option but to take a further step. You would have to inquire into what it was about the configuration of atoms and those trajectories that gave them the propensity to deposit a copper atom at this location. Pursuing this inquiry would be a creative task, as discovering new explanations always is. You would have to discover that certain atomic configurations support emergent phenomena, such as leadership and war, which are related to one another by higher-level explanatory theories. Only when you knew those theories could you fully understand why that copper atom is where it is. Well, there we go. And that's where I'll end it today. Uh, that, is a, that is a little story, a parable, the parable of the copper atom, that I must have referred to, gosh, um, more than dozens, it's got to be hundreds of times by now, um, in, in attempting to just explain why physics isn't the only game in town. Not only that, this idea of, well, there's no choice in the matter. The universe is just the unfolding of atoms moving in the void under deterministic laws, and that that somehow is an explanation of things. It's not. It shows you the value of all other subjects, including physics, including history, for example. Something that some scientists traditionally over the years have kind of dismissed as not so important. But physics and science broadly cannot possibly do everything. Now, of course, I love science. I'm um, passionate about the sciences. Uh, history is something I would do just merely as a hobby. But that's not to say that I don't think the historians aren't doing a job as equally important as the scientists, let's say. And so too for every other area of human knowledge. Not to say that they're not all filled with misconceptions, and I wouldn't think that uh, historians sometimes are going down terribly blind alleys and can be biased and all that sort of stuff. The subject itself is as important as chemistry, as physics, as medicine. Okay, All these things form a coherent whole, and we need to understand that explanations at the different levels are required at those different levels, are absolutely appropriate at those different levels, and are the only way we can make sense of things at those levels. History is required because it's the only way to understand 
matters of history. Okay, applying physics to that is ridiculous, as we have just seen. And applying theoretical physics to any other domain outside of theoretical physics is going to be a fool's errand. Unless, of course, it somehow subsumes those areas, as we have said before, like computation, for example, was brought into physics, into quantum physics. And so now maybe epistemology will be brought into that area as well. But only once it becomes a good explanation. Applying theoretical physics to things like why Winston Churchill's statue is there is silly. Okay, so part two. Done and dusted. We are on to part three next time. And until then, <laughs> bye-bye.